Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Man, amen. How are we doing? It's going to be loud. Sorry, a little bit of adjustment here. So welcome to our family service. Pretty excited about that. Um, Normally we don't have kids with us, but we just thought it's Easter in a new building. And uh, hey, everybody wants to be here for Easter, so why not just hang out with kiddos, right? I don't know if you guys saw it, but I actually got a sweet little dance routine that happened right here. (laughs) Yep, yep. And we got a couple other big, more excitable songs coming later. So if you want to see some good dancing, it's going to be right here. If you want to join, that's totally fine as well. We're, we're all right with that. Well, my name is Sean, and I'm the lead pastor here at Trailside Church, and it is bizarre to me that we are in this building. Let me tell you why. Um, two years ago, when we first talked about planting a church in this city, our main question was, where in the world will we go? What will be useful? Where, where can we begin to house people? And Genuinely, I have photos on my computer from my wife and I in this parking lot two years ago when this building was City Hall, praying that God would allow us to be here in this building. And so um, it's crazy to me that we're here. Uh, And I didn't tell anybody that for a long time because, you know, like you don't want to seem like that hyper spiritual guy. You know, everyone's had that one like lady walk up to him on the side of the street and been like, the Lord has a word for you. You're like, all right, lady, I don't know you. Please leave me alone. Right? So I don't want to like throw hyper-spiritual stuff out there, but we, we prayed and we drove by this, this uh, huge building and we'd hold our hand out. And I would just ask God, like, if this is what we're supposed to be doing, this is where we're supposed to be. If he had a plan for this city, maybe it could happen here. And so um, almost two years to the day, man, we're sitting in this building and it's crazy. Um, yeah, we can say that. Yep. And, and to do it on, to, to open this building on such an incredible day, uh, literally, I think it was, where, where are, they, are my interns? Was it three weeks ago? Two weeks ago. So last Friday, so it's two weeks plus two days, we got a phone call from the mayor that said, hey, would you guys still want to be in this building? And we all, I muted it on my phone, and all of the interns and I were sitting around a corner at setup, and we started fist pumping and getting excited. Um, and I tried not to cry. You don't want to cry in front of the mayor and the city administrator, you know. Nobody wants to do that. Um, and we celebrated, and I'm, not, I'm telling you, I, I, I'll show some before pictures later, um, but what this building is now is so bizarre. It's crazy that in two weeks um, we've had people come and give so much time and so much effort uh, there are literally people who have been in this building getting it prepared for you and for your families um, probably in the vicinity of 85 hours in the last week or so, um, and then 10 to 12 hours every day before that. Uh, literally any minute we could be in the building, we were here. And so um, I just want to thank those guys, and you know who you are. We love you. Uh, this is what happens when we work hard and when we love Jesus Um, Because now we have a place for people to come and hear. Because the best news of today isn't this building. It's that Jesus is risen. I sat in this courtroom turned auditorium last night and put great is thy faithfulness on the screen. All by myself. Because, you know, again, you don't want to cry in front of people. Maybe you do, and that's an issue I have. Maybe I should cry in front of people more. I don't know. And, And I... 
in a moment I thought like, okay, great is thy faithfulness because we're here in this building, but how much more so when we celebrate Easter Sunday that everything that he said would come true has? And if everything that he said would come true has, what does that mean for us when this is all over? Like, do we actually have such a great hope? Or are we just doing church? A place to meet people? Apparently, if you're a college student, a place to find a girlfriend? It's happening all over the place in here. Scoop them up while you can, guys. And I remember, you know, we've gone to church. I I grew up in church, and so we, we went to church every Easter, even when I didn't want to. And I thought to myself last night as I was even standing here, I I don't want us to forget how special this day is, not just because we're in a church, but because if we grow cold to what Easter really is, then I think we are living a lot of our life in vain and in fear and insecurity. I I don't want this to become normal. I, I don't want Easter Sunday to be a thing that we just get through and then go find Easter baskets and eat too much food and laugh. Uh, and, and it's amazing, guys, how things can become just another day, right? Like Clemson fans. All right, now I like Clemson. All right, don't hate on me. All right, I, I'm with you. I'm an Ohio State fan, but I like Clemson. I know. Yeah, welcome to the South. But here's what's crazy. This is how, how good we are at things becoming just normal. If you think of Clemson winning all the time, I want to remind you I want to remind you that before 2011, the last time Clemson won the ACC was 20 years before. But it's become normal to us, right? Like, as an Ohio State fan, I've had this realization pretty regularly. Pretty much every week we expect to win, right? Yeah, I want to hear schedule stuff. It's because we're great. And Clemson fans now have gotten to the point where, like, getting to the playoff isn't a big deal anymore. You just kind of are there, and you're like, yeah, okay, now the work starts, right? It's, it's an assumed thing. And I think we do the same with things like Easter. Like, we know church is going to be here. We know somebody's going to get up and talk about Jesus resurrecting and moving from the dead. We know that someone is going to come up and say, hey, this is the greatest day ever. But I think the problem is that we've grown cold to it. Or maybe not even cold, expectant, and kind of just, it is a thing. And I don't want that to ever become normal. I think we tend to miss this extreme value in these crucial moments because they become normal to us. And it's amazing how Easter can become just another day. And I don't want us to lose that with this building, but even more than that, I don't want us to miss that with Easter. If we walk out of this church and and Easter is just another day, then I think we have done ourselves a great disservice. And the error, I think, in our, our church culture is that we believed that our strength and our, and our adversities, the things that we try to push through and power through, that, that that's actually greater than the one that we're celebrating. So we come to Easter, and Easter is another Sunday. Because we think, I'm going to go, and I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to be fine, I'm going to continue life. And we say, I can be self-sufficient, and then next year we'll just have another Easter. So my encouragement to you this morning as we read this story is this. If you've come this morning ready to push through, ready to just get through the next 30 or 40 minutes in an attempt to leave church, feeling like you've passed your civic spiritual duty, 
I want to I ask you to take a moment and actually consider that the reason that you're here isn't to power through another Sunday. The reason you're here <clears throat> is because the God of the universe and his love and care and consideration for you brought you here and put you here for a distinct purpose this morning. And that distinct purpose might be to shake you of your self-sufficiency. It might be to shake you of your fear of what could be in the future. It might be to shake you of the idea that what you have right now may actually not be enough. And so in that, I would like you to join me in Isaiah 53, one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture. I want to just read the first 10 verses of this beautiful, beautiful prophecy written some 800 years before Jesus would walk the earth. This is what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. See, this is the story many of us have become acclimated to. That that doesn't shake us to our core. That this love story has been told so often that we've drawn comfortable to its reality. And yet in, in Isaiah 53:10, this is what this is what the prophet says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. See, that was merely a good Friday. 
At this point, Isaiah, we're at Good Friday. We have a Savior who grew, who lived sinlessly, who as he was taken away and thrust into an illegal court and found guilty of nothing he ever did, except be exactly who he says he was. He was then hung on a cross after his body was torn to pieces and died. And in Isaiah 53.10, we see where the the scripture says that it was God's will to crush him for your sake. But church, we're here to celebrate a great Sunday, not simply a good Friday. And as verse 11 and 12 say, this is why we celebrate. For out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because, because, not because, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for them. Easter Sunday is not a day where we just get eggs and eat chocolate and have a family time and call it yay. Easter Sunday is a day where we celebrate a Savior who bore the sins of many, including us, for our sake and died the death we didn't have to, so that when this life and this whatever this is is over, we have hope and a future. That's why this is so great. See, it's, it's not just that you can get through your next day. The gospel is not a self-help book where you can just be better, where you can forgive where you couldn't have forgiven, where you can survive what you didn't think you'd be able to. The gospel is that no matter what happens to you here on this earth, it is not anything that can separate you from the eternity that Jesus has given you. It's that this is not the hope for you. It's that this is the snare, that this is the struggle that this is the hurt, that this is where perseverance comes through because we are persevering not to death, but we are persevering to life. And that is why I do not want this to become normal. This is verse 12 says, he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with transgressors so that we would not be. And so as we read this account of what was prophesied 800 years prior, my hope is that we would not grow cold on this Easter Sunday. For it was our transgressions that Christ was placed on this cross and nothing else. See, I think we've done a good job of of going to church on Easter and living our lives and treating Jesus and the cross and the resurrection as spiritual swimmies in order to not drown. But here's the truth of the gospel and why it is great. It is not something to keep you afloat so you don't drown. It's that Jesus, by the cross and resurrection, did not give you an opportunity not to drown, that he pulled you dead from the bottom and breathed life into you, that he resuscitates what is gone and dead forever, and he brings life and hope. If the gospel is spiritual swimmies, then we're just trying to survive. The gospel is life for the dead. The gospel is resuscitation for that which was gone, hopeless and forgotten about. 
is a resuscitation for us when we've been long lost at sea. And so as we read this account of the only hope we have, join me in not allowing this to be another week, another Easter, another story we've heard that lacks in power. But instead, consider that maybe we are better when we allow ourselves to reject self-dependence. When we reject self-sufficiency, when we reject the lie that we have to be good enough and tough, and instead, let this be a day where we find the joy of what we're celebrating this morning, that it is more than a powerful story to celebrate, that Jesus actually did die in your place and mine, and because of that, we have a place in eternity because he pulls the dead man out of the drowning waters. It is so much greater than just floating and surviving. So we go to Matthew 28. We've talked about the prophecy. Let's talk about the real deal. Y'all good with that? Amen. So verse 1, Jesus has been hung on a cross. His body has been crushed and destroyed, flesh torn from his back, all that stuff that we have kids in the room, so I'm not going to go into too hard. And now he's died. He's been taken down the cross. He's been put in a grave. And Mary Magdalene and his mother Mary have now ventured to the tomb in order to dress him appropriately to Jewish law, to preserve him. And so I'm going to read 62 into 28, but you can just hear it. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last, or the last fraud will be worse than the first. You ever been in that place where you're a little fearful of what might happen? Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Listen, this wasn't to like just guys walking the streets like, hey, you want to guard this tomb of Jesus? This was the biggest, baddest soldiers that the Roman guard had. Because they knew that if Jesus was right, what they had already experienced had nothing on what was coming. And they knew that if they failed to secure Jesus' body, and even if people could lie about it, if his disciples had the opportunity to steal it and lie about it, that it would be worse for them as the government and as the high priests and as the religious people than it ever was when he was walking the earth. But then we get into Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's his mom, I care about moms. <laughs> Went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. Now, I love to do this. Place yourself there. Like, can we just go there for a minute? All right, I'm going to get a little lighthearted here. You're walking to the grave where you believe your son 
and your rabbi is dead. And as you approach, like lightning, an angel from the Lord comes down, the stone rolls away, and he's glowing. I don't know about y'all, but the next verses, if this was about Sean, would be, and then he turned around and ran as fast as he could. <laughs> that, would be, that would be me. I'm out. Right? Peace out. I'm gone. I remember as a 19-year-old walking up the stairs to my parents' old house, and it was dark. And I was like, ah, I can get up the stairs on a flat without it turning on the lights on. I don't want to wake anybody up. And I got like halfway up, and I immediately like, did one of these, you know? I turned around down the stairs like, who's there? I don't, I don't do well with being scared. Not my thing. If you do it, I'll either cry or hit you. So it's one of those two things. I'm talking a lot about crying today. So this angel comes down, he's glowing white, the stone rolls away, he's sitting on top of it, Mary and Mary Magdalene are there, the soldiers are there, and here's a scene that continues to paint. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Amen, bro, I'm with you. I get that. That's a part of the story that makes sense. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Easier said than done. I love this. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified, but he is not here. For he has risen just as he said he would. Let that not grow cold. Come. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. What's up, Jesus? (laughs) Yeah? Golly. I don't know. I guess he's cool that he knew it was coming. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers in Galilee where they will come see me. So, so the messenger of the angel tells the good news and gives them three directives. But it's all based on the first truth. Come and see. He's not here. He has risen exactly as he says he would. And I love that like the angel, you know, feeling like he has to further verify the story here outside of him coming down like lightning from heaven, glowing and people falling and looking dead. He says, no, come on in. Come see this. The Gospel of John talks about and they found linen laying there, which brings some more questions. There it is. Now it's clicking. I say, and he's about to meet you. So go, go and tell. And so the messenger tells these women to do three things. Receive the truth, proclaim the truth, and follow in the way that he's called you. Now here's what's crazy. There's a lot of skeptics in the world. In fact, in this cultural context, there's a lot of reason to believe that maybe God should have used some men instead. And it's not because I hate women. Let me finish, okay? Let's not storm out. 
No, but in that cultural time, a woman's testimony was actually not met with validity. Women were seen as emotional, manipulative. And the two people who were going to give this were the mother of the guy who just hung on a cross and died brutally and one of his closest disciples. So see, he had every reason to use someone else because they could have been seen as unbalanced and emotional. But if that was true, then maybe the story would have been different. But it's not because he is exactly who he says he is. But see, then we read what happens to those who are fearful and self-sufficient. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now, here's why that's important. Because if the guards failed and the disciples came and stole a body, they would be killed. So the chief priests say, here's money. Go move to Morocco. And we'll take care of your boss. We got this covered. Don't stress about it. Because it's, it's amazing what we have to do if the resurrection is real. And in this moment when the resurrection was real, the chief priests knew what happened, and yet their go-to was to cover it up and hide. And so I ask you, if this resurrection is real, what is your go-to this morning? But let me not get ahead. Let's say it is untrue. Let's say you're here and you're like, this is all baloney. I just got dragged here by my wife or husband. What if it is, you know, is untrue? Listen, there's people who have said multiple times, scholars who have come up with these theories to alleviate this and say, well, it's not really true. The first is the swoon theory. It's this idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just appeared dead, which is interesting considering the guards at the gate. And this theory asserts that Jesus hanging on the cross appeared to be dead because he was in bad shape. Now, listen, I know that I appear to be ready for summer body, but I'm not. But the, the, the nature of Jesus' injuries are in, inescapable. If you don't die from wounds and bleeding out, you die from suffocation. And dehydration, your body shuts down. And that theory also would have had to assert that Jesus woke up, right? Had enough strength to push a 400 plus pound stone out of the way. While doing that, peace out by the guards and hope they didn't catch him. And then show back up exactly where he needed to be. See, he would have had nothing to eat or drink for two days. I can't go like six hours without being mean. I don't know about y'all. He would have been severely dehydrated. His body a pulpy mess from being ripped apart. 
the gaping wound in his side where they pierced him would have pierced his lung or his heart. And the same Jesus who they assert would be able to get up and move a stone just a few days earlier on the way to the cross had already crumpled carrying 100 pounds of a cross beam above him. Yet now he manages to roll a stone away. 400 pounds. And sneak by two of the highest trained guards the Roman army had. Well, there's the theft theory. That the disciples went and stole his body. Which is interesting because all the disciples were terrified. Notice Peter says that he doesn't even know Jesus three times. And they all run away. There was no one to steal his body. Oh, and they would have had to beat down two of the toughest guards the Roman army had. And then roll away a 400-pound stone. Doesn't work. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about this. And this is the truth of what I hope we will struggle with this morning as we close. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be people. We are, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, church, if Jesus didn't actually resurrect from the dead, everyone outside should feel bad for all of us because we've just spent an hour singing, maybe feeling a little awkward, right? Giving financially, spending time listening and reading, considering we have wasted everything. Everything we've done is futile. You should feel bad for me because I am leading everything to death. If he was not raised. Every mile of gas you've spent, every piece of clothing that you've bought to be presentable on Easter Sunday, every celebration of ham and Easter egg you've bought, every moment of time you've spent in prayer, every time that you've sought hope, and help. It's futile. It's wasted. But here's what it is. See, Jesus doesn't allow a halfway on his resurrection. The most common held skepticism of Jesus' resurrection is in our own stubbornness, in our own fear, in our own need for control. And I would offer you that if you're living your life now, hoping that the resurrection isn't real, then your faith in not knowing Jesus is futile. 
If your hope is in this world and what today will offer you and hoping that you wake up for tomorrow, then your hope is futile. If this is all you have, I feel bad for you. Because the gospel, because the resurrection is the only hope we have that all the things you're going through and the disease and the cancer and the hurt and the brokenness and the financial ruin and the hardship, all of those things that you have experienced, will experience, all the tough moments of your life are futile and they're not getting better because you have no hope. But I would offer you that the gospel is real. That Jesus' resurrection is very true. See, I saved a few more verses for you. Because in verse 51 of the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says something that I hope that as we walk out of this room in a few moments, that we will wrestle with and, and maybe actually, I don't know, not hold ourselves so guilty on. This is what Paul says in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immorality. Immortality. Sorry, that's a wrong word to say. Take off immorality. Very tired. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, the resurrection is true, and if it wasn't, we would be wasting time, but we have a Savior who did not waste his time. And Jesus' death wasn't sufficient for part of your sin. Or part of your obligation. It wasn't sufficient for the things that church people can deal with. Like a little bit of white lying or some gluttony. Or sometimes just waking up and being a jerk. Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient for those things, but it's sufficient for so much more. It's sufficient for your fear. It's sufficient for your pride. It's sufficient for your struggle. It's sufficient for everything you hold in here that no one else knows because you're scared that if you let it out, you might appear vulnerable. It is sufficient for that and so much more. Because Jesus' death is not sufficient for a part of our sin, but the whole. See, death, the one thing humans fear, second. You know what the first thing is? Speaking in front of people. To quote Jerry Seinfeld, people would rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. See, that death that we fear is swallowed up in victory. 
The sting of that death is sin, and your victory in it and over it is not in yourself, but it is in Jesus who died in your place, who God said that he found joy and purpose in his will to crush Jesus for your sake, for your eternity, that, that this struggle that you're in, this body that is breaking down slowly, when you wake up and your back hurts and you don't know why because all you did was go to sleep, is not your hope. Because death is swallowed up in victory. And so I ask you, what are you waiting for today? Why do you hold back? What in your life needs that resurrection of power of Christ our King? He's not mildly sufficient in his salvation. He only can be fully efficient. He doesn't know how to forgive you halfway. Because he already has fully. But no, here is your hope. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then called himself the foremost. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. James 1 says that your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, that no one can steal it from you. That the salvation that God offers you is yours forever and no one can take it away. You can't give it away because you were given it free as a gift. That you don't break that code because you will. That's why God made it unbreakable. And because he did, everything is different. His victory is our eternal hope because our reality and your reality of why this cannot just be another Easter is this, that Jesus rose from the grave. And if he truly did, everything for you must change. Church, he is risen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for hope that we have through you. And God, I thank you for your resurrection. I thank you that in all things, when the world tries to strike us down, that nothing can separate us from you. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there is anyone here who's been waiting, who's been fighting and toiling, who out of fear or pride or whatever it might be, has not been able to give themselves over to you, I I, I just pray this would be an Easter of salvation. That this would be an Easter of hope. That Jesus, you have already done the work. That your grace is sufficient. That it was God's will, the Father's will, for your body to be torn and destroyed for our sake. And that in that, Father, you are working. So Lord, as we close today, as we worship this morning, I pray that you would give us hope. That this is not a normal Easter because you do not have a normal resurrection. 
that you give us all we need. As a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.